Rest is an elusive, slippery thing to keep a hold of, and especially sleep. I mean, we might have a stretch of a couple good days in a row or maybe a week, but then something out of our control just swoops in, and all of a sudden our rest is gone. So what's our next move? Is to stress. And so we lay awake in bed stressing about the things we can't control. We lie awake in bed thinking about our kids, our finances, meaning, identity, and our loneliness. So what's the solution to our stress? Well, stress only begets more work, right? So we work harder and we work longer. We work hard at improving ourselves, becoming a better version of me so that I can be likable. And after all the stress and all this labor, we just feel the toil, the vain toil of our work. I mean, so a lot of times at night in the echo chambers of our head, when there's no one else around, we, we, we feel guilty. Could I have done more? Could I have said something different? Did I do it right? We feel shame wondering, oh, if I would have just done a little bit more, just a little bit more, maybe I would feel better about myself. Something must, must, must be wrong with me. And this is the human condition, that, that we work to fix in our own strength what seems to be wrong, and we do it in the way we think is right. You know, it's on our terms. If you think about when's the last time you said to someone, oh, I'll rest when X happens, when I get this done. When I finish this house project, when my kids grow up, when the sales quarter finishes, when the semester's over, when I get done preaching this sermon, I'll rest. It's so often what we see, but like any other good thing, this good work that we're doing is a good thing until it becomes a God thing. And work just doesn't deliver, it only delivers more work. And so when we look to our work to give us rest that we long for, it only makes us more restless in our work. So this this is the point that Derek Thompson, a secular author, makes in an article he wrote about occupational work entitled, Workism is Making Americans, Americans Miserable. And so he pointed to several articles written in the 50s and that with the progress of technology, by the time we're in in the 2020s, We'll be having 15-hour work weeks and life full of meaning and happiness. But you fast forward 70 years and Americans, well, we're working more than ever and we're less happy more than ever. And he puts the reason of this is that work has become central, more central to our identities. So for our grandparents, work was, was a job. For our parents, work was a career. And for my generation, work is a calling. And what's really interesting about this article is that he uses religious language to make his point. So his first point is titled, The Gospel of Work. And he states that workism is among the most potent of new religions competing for congregants. Creating this idea that the meaning of life should be found in work. So we tell everyone that, oh, you should be passionate about your work. You can change the world through your work. Talk about over-promising. Maybe what's most striking in his article are these sentences right here. Our desks were never meant to be altars. Our jobs were never meant to shoulder the burdens of faith, and they are buckling under the weight. I couldn't agree more with that. But we have this new tension. Well, work is good, right? Shouldn't we put our hand to good, hard work? 
I think that's right. The Bible tells us that we should be doing hard work. But the question now, in light of this, that our psalm helps us answer is, how do we restfully labor versus labor in vain? This question was just as relevant to uh, Israel back then as it was today. Uh, This sermon series, we've been going through the Psalms of Ascent. And each psalm is like a new step, getting you closer and closer in your journey to God's heavenly city. And there have been themes coming across like God is our help. Where do we lift our eyes to Mount Zion? Because that's where God our help is. And God is building the city. God is establishing the city. And God is populating the city with his people. But the psalmist also knows that life is hard full of hard work, and life doesn't play out the way we anticipate it. So the question that this psalm gets at, which would be the big idea, uh, the big question for a sermon is, what gives rest, not stress, in our labor? What gives rest and not stress in our labor? And the psalm answers this in two sections in two different ways. And in verse 1, uh, Solomon teaches us about vain labor, and then gives us the answer. And then in the second section, verses 3 to 5, he gives us an example of blessed labor answering the same question. So those would be my two points. Number one, vain labor. And number two, blessed labor that answer this question, what gives rest, not stress, in our labor? All right, here we go. So first up, vain labor. Listen as I read from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord, let me back up, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gates. Well, as the psalm begins, it is a song of Solomon, which gives us a clue that this psalm, and actually the next psalm, is a psalm of wisdom, which is trying to make sense of how we live in this world. And our psalm is particularly addressing how do we work? How do we labor in this world? And Solomon wants us to understand this. He wants to understand this, but also to to feel it. I mean, look, he uses the word vain there three times. Vain, vain, vain. Vain labor is labor done apart from God. And therefore, that kind of labor, it's, it's meaningless and toilsome. And it's like the myth of Sisyphus, which he was punished by Zeus, and his punishment was having to push a boulder up a hill every time. And right as he would get top, the boulder would come back down. I mean, talk about vain and toil, toilsome labor. It's sweat equity that doesn't pay off. And Solomon gives us two examples in this first verse. First of all, building a house on our own is meaningless. And building a house is like this idea of building something from nothing. So when you build a house, you build it from the ground up. When you build a house biologically, you have children, children that did not exist before. And so building a house is establishing something that wasn't there. And once you get that house established, well, you have to protect it. So we put watchmen around the city to protect our house and everyone else's. 
And the point here is apart from God, our building and our protecting are meaningless. It's like spending all day laboring over a sandcastle. Uh, we know it's not going to last. We know it's going to crumble. We can look for the waves, but like, we're not going to stop the waves. Like, What use is it? And that's all good and fine when we talk about a sandcastle, but man, it gets hard when we're trying to establish our life. When you're trying to run, laboring over a business you've started and you can't find the right employees or you get broken into. You labor over being a good employee, but your boss is the kind of person who causes all the problems and takes all the credit. You labor over raising a child the right way and, and it doesn't work out the way you thought. You labor over studying for a test and you don't get the grade that you want. Is all this labor in vain? So pressing into the question, what does vain work apart from God give you? Does it give you rest? Oh, it only gives you more and more toilsome, vain labor. That's what verse 2 gets at. If you look at um, this in vain, you get up early and you stay up late. The point is saying like you just keep working more and more, but what do you have to show for it? You have a meal on the table, but you can't really even taste it or enjoy it because all you can taste is the toil of your anxious labor. Man, Solomon wants us to feel the vanity of work apart from God. Vain, vain, vain. It doesn't give rest. It only creates more stress and less sleep. So I think already we're receiving a warning. We're receiving a warning to that giving yourself to your career apart from God his strength and his will, is vain. You're not going to have anything to show for it after years and years of labor. Sure, you might have food on the table. You'll have shelter over your head, good things, but we don't know if that will last. It will never work apart from God, will never fulfill us apart from God. It buckles under the weight. As we heard earlier, our desks weren't made to be altars. I think part of the problem is here is when we kind of fly solo in our work. And we do that by saying, oh, my, my, my spiritual life, it's, it's over here. And, you know, my, my, my work life, it's over here. And Solomon's trying to say, no, that's not a true dividing line. That's a false dichotomy. Here's where the line is. Are you laboring with God or apart from God? And so to help us see this clearly, he wants us to make us to see that God's work is ultimate, We see that in verse 1, unless the Lord. We see that twice. Unless the Lord builds a house or watches over a city, it's vain. And so in in this first verse already, we see that there's a reality that God works, we work, but his work is ultimate. He is ultimately the one building the house and watching over the city. But it's also his work that we are doing. It has always been his plan to build a house of his people, and to watch over it. So God tells us what his work is. So we're not left to aimlessly kind of wander around saying, oh, maybe I should do that, or, or this feels good and right. No, 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 no. God has told us what his good work is. So, so is, this, is this the thing that gives us rest? Is this the thing that gives us good sleep? Well, I, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think it's good, but it doesn't quite get us there. It's not enough yet. Solomon is still pointing to the problem here. Because we know the good we ought to do, 
and we don't do it. And a natural instinct in us then is to want to do more. We do more to make God happy with us. We do more to make God proud of us. And when we do this, we slide into treating God as though he was a a benevolent boss, that if I do enough, he'll notice me. He'll give me a pay raise. He'll give me the things that I really want. And then we've made God nothing more than a transactional boss, that if I do the right things, then he'll give me what I want. Of course, we know this is problematic because ultimately this isn't God. God is not just some benevolent boss. God wants more than a worker. He wants family members. So when we try and do all these things to please God, it results in the same thing, just more labor, more vain labor, where we just feel like we're spinning our wheels. So the answer to the question, what gives us rest, not stress in our labor, he finally gets to his answer. Finally gets to his answer in the second part of verse 2, when he says, yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Did you see it? What gives us rest? God gives us rest. Who does God give us, give rest to? Those he loves. And can you feel the shift in tone and language here? From the earlier parts, you can feel the vanity. You can feel the, the work. The transaction, the relationship is, is very much as though employee to boss. But here, oh, it shifts to deep and personal love. We move from insecurity to security. And what a sweet picture this is. I, I, I think if you're like me, this causes us to ask one more question. One more question. How are we beloved by God? Because I think everyone in this room, we know that in our sin, we have worked apart from God. And we've worked against God. That we've worked in our own strength and our own wisdom and haven't listened to the things he has said. And we can't just simply work our way back to God. Well, I think what's helpful to remember is this, is that Solomon wrote this psalm. So it's actually a really personal psalm to him. I mean, he was named beloved by the prophet Nathan when he was born. So he is the loved one here. When this psalm talks about a house, Solomon was one who built the house of the Lord, the temple. And when it talks about the Lord watching over a city, that's what Solomon prayed in the dedication of the temple. Solomon started strong, trusting that this was the Lord's ultimate work doing this. But he ended up taking, against God's command, a bunch of wives, in part to secure up political power and security. He ended up building his army up beyond what God commanded, against God's command. Why? To, well, to shore up his security and make a show of power and strength. So we know that Solomon wasn't the one. And I think we all see ourselves in Solomon. Moments in our life when we do the work that we think is right, we do it in our own strength, and really in the end we're doing it for our own glory. We're doing it for our own attention. Well, Solomon clearly wasn't the son of David that would be the Messiah. We know that Jesus was. And I think it's significant that both in Jesus' baptism and in the transfiguration, what do we hear God's voice bellow through and say? This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And so Jesus lives the perfect life, loved by God, loving God, to the extent of even going to the cross and dying for the sins of all the world, and then raises to life 
as this ultimate display of God's love and God's power, God's effectual labor. And therefore, now the turn comes that as we believe in Jesus Christ, we are loved. We are loved by the Father as the Father loves the Son. And just as we sang a little bit earlier, there is no end or bottom to this love. This vast as the ocean and the tide of his love washes over us because God's labor to save us is effectual. And so now we're finally getting to the answer of the question I think this psalm is asking. Because this is the antithesis of vain work. God's love is effectual, can't get away from it, therefore we can rest knowing that God is doing the work and that you are beloved. And we can work knowing that you are beloved and God will do the work. And so I think the answer to this question is restfully work and sleep because you are loved by God. Do you want to know how to rest? How to have a rest that's unmovable? What's to remember you are beloved by God. So this morning, if if you're not a Christian, this is the good news that we want you to hear. That Christianity isn't about a ceaseless labor to get everything right. I mean, there's an ocean's worth of things that we have to fix in ourselves. We won't ever get it right. Work will never give us the fulfillment that we look for, but you have something so much better in Jesus. You have a love and security that cannot be shaken. So rather than you working and toiling just to try and feel better by yourself and get some sense of establishment, no, we invite you to believe in Jesus, the one who establishes all of us. And if you have any questions about that, I'll be standing by that door at the end of service. You could talk to me or anyone else that is next to you. Christians in the room, how do we apply this? Well, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say sleep. Christians, sleep. In our psalm, the evidence of knowing that we are loved is found in our sleep. Evidence that we don't work in vain is demonstrated by our our sleep. And I want to make a quick disclaimer to say, I know some people in the church, we deal with insomnia. and, And there are multiple reasons and layers to why we don't get sleep. If that's you, listen to your doctor, but continue to make the fight and the battle to trust in God to sleep. For some of us, This means that we need to remember that restful sleep comes from remembering that you are loved. We need to rehearse this over and over again. Like I said earlier, it's often in the bed when when our voices, there's kind of a cycle, downward cycle, where all of our failures, all of the things we hate about ourselves come to light. And no, we don't, shame and guilt don't keep us from sleep because you are beloved. There's peace in that. Some of us, we need to remember that God is doing the work for his beloved. To remember that you are finite, but he isn't. He is working when you aren't. And that's a restful thought. Honestly, sleep is an assault against our pride of productivity. Sleeping is an act of radical trust in God's divine activity. And so if you tell me, no, no, Neil, I, I trust. I trust God, but functionally you, you're a workaholic. I want to tell you, well, prove it. Prove that you trust God by sleeping. 
prove that God is going to do this work by going to sleep. Literally, what does this look like? Before you leave work at the end of your day and you see the list of things you didn't get done, take a look at it, pray about it, go home, get a good night's sleep. When we're at that part of the night, when all the kids, we think they're mostly in bed and staying in bed, you know, uh, and we replay the day that's before us, what do we do? Whatever stresses we have, think through them, take them to the Lord, rest, get a good night's sleep, and come back tomorrow. Because ultimately, the Lord is doing all this work. Sleep is one clear way to apply this text. But I think the other clear way we have to apply this text is we've got to work. We've got to work. But we've got to restfully work. Does this mean that we just, I mean, as we read this text, there's a tension here. Like, what, we know that there's God's work, and we know that there's our work, but this is ultimately God's work. Does that mean we... We sit back and we just sleep it off and kind of do what we want, let God do the work. No, I, I, think, I don't think anyone thinks that, right? You even read this passage and you see that, no, the laborer is still building and the laborer is still watching, right? So, so we know that we should be working and working hard. So what is the way forward? I think this uh, helpful way forward comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. And this maps onto our text really, really well. It's answering the question, this is the 91st Catechism, what are good works? And the answer is threefold. This is going to be the closest thing you'll ever see me do to give you three steps to work. (laughs) Threefold is, first, work from faith. Two, according to the will of God. Three, for the glory of God. We work from faith, according to the will of God, for the glory of God. This is the opposite of vain work. So first of all, just think about even doing work proceeding from faith. That's the opposite of vain work. We are actually working knowing that God will work. We're not working apart God. We're working with God. So this means that we don't work for security. We work from security. We don't work for worth. We work from worth in Christ. And when we're dying from either the mundaneness or the frustration of our job, remember that God is working in all things, including this mundaneness. So we work in faith, trusting that we are beloved, trusting that God is working. Number two, we work according to God's will. We do God's work at all times. Remember that he is sharing his work with us. So don't be just about your work. Always be about God's work, making disciples, evangelizing, centering your life around the church. And let me just tell you that, um, that we need workers in every field of the workplace doing this. We need doctors, we need engineers, teachers, salespeople. We need people who are working for the purposes of God, but also in the character of God, who are working in a way that treats others better themselves, working hard, working honest, being a beacon of God's goodness and light to others. So not only do we work from faith, work according to God's will, but we work for the glory of God. What does labor apart from God promote? My glory. It promotes my kingdom. It promotes me. So what's the natural opposite of this? Oh, we want to work for the glory of God and the glory of Christ. So when someone asks you, oh man, how, how are you patient? I was about to lose it on that boss. 
Well, those are nice little opportunities to say, well, because God's been patient with me, and so I think I should be patient with others. Like, how do we turn this and point things towards God? Ultimately, that's where everything is headed, to the glory of God in Christ. So again, do good works proceeding from faith according to God's will for the glory of God. So our psalm has been seeking to answer so far this question, what gives rest, not stress, in our labor? And and verses 1 through 2 teach us what that is, and the answer is to restfully work and sleep because you're loved by God. Verses 3 through 5 answer this question in a a different way. It answers it not by teaching or gives us an, an answer, but it gives us an example. It gives us an example of blessed labor, which is bearing and raising children. So let's go to point number two, blessed labor. And listen as I read again verses three through five. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame. When they, speak in the, with, when they speak with their enemies at the city gates. What an example of laboring in a way that gives, gives us rest, not stress, right? Having kids. And I feel like most of the young parents around here are like, did you read that right? Are you sure you read the right commentaries? Because I don't, I don't feel rest. I actually feel kind of exhausted. So again, Solomon is trying to point us to a bigger picture. He's not saying that our, our work is easy. He's trying to keep us from vain work. But in the process, it's hard work. So he wants to show us how raising kids can give us rest. And I think there's a couple ways that we can help see this. First of all, is the tie into who is doing the work. Who's doing the work in, in, in bearing children? God or the man and wife? Well, last time I checked, I, I don't think one person can have a child on their own. They need help from someone else. And often what happens when a mom and dad, a husband and wife go to sleep? Sometimes kids happen. What then if you ask any mother who has a child, is this easy? Is this work? And I'm pretty sure you're going to say, uh, yeah, this is this, it's a lot of work. And you ask any parent of children, are you going to ask, is this restful? They're going to say, no, this is a lot of work. It's clear that we have work in the process. Yet the psalm says it's, it's God's. It's God's work that God gives children that they are a blessing and a heritage, a reward for the womb. And like verses 1 and 2, we work, but we see that this is ultimately God's work, a labor, labor blessed by God. Secondly, like building a house and watching over a city, God, this is God's plan. God has ordained biological children to be the norm in Christian marriage. Third, Getting closer to answering this question, we've been asking along, how do we find rest in bearing and raising children? Parenting's hard. Well, uh, I think the way we do this is look to see how this mirrors on and maps on to verse 1. So, so first of all, sons are an heritage from the Lord, an offspring, a reward. That's how you build a house. That's how you build a house. A family house and a family name is through build, bearing children. How is that house protected? Well, it's protected by the very children. That's why children are compared to arrows in the hands of a warrior. That's why the father will never be put to shame. I mean, so back in the day, uh, what would happen is if an enemy came to a city gate, you were only as strong as your family. So if it was just you standing there, you weren't that strong. Oh, but if you had eight, nine older children standing behind you with the arrows pulled, 
Oh, then you have credibility. Then you have stability. And that's what this passage is getting at, is saying that you will have rest because your children will give you rest. Not that it is easy, but that your children themselves will give you security and rest. So raising children is a lot of work. It's an understatement, but it's not vain work. It's a blessed work. And that's why in verse 5 it says, Happy is the man who has a quiver full of kids. So I just want to pause and say that I love walking into this church and hearing the sounds of children in our church. I love seeing them, even seeing them run around. I'm okay with it. Uh, I love that we have a church full of young children, that we have a lot of parents doing the good work of raising children. Whenever my friends have babies, which is a lot and happens a lot, I just could not be more happy for them because children are good blessing from the Lord. So Henson, let's keep at it. Let's keep young little ones running around here. Let's keep growing our church with little children around. But honestly, this verse has also done some harm. This is a wisdom psalm, so I think we would do well to read this psalm wisely. And a lot of the wisdom books aren't saying that this is the way things are. Uh, are, They're saying that these are the way things should be, but it's often not the way that they are. So these verses have been used to kind of flatly and legalistically put burdens on people they shouldn't have to bear. For instance, it's been used to guilt parents into having more children than their capacity will allow. Secondly, how, how do people without children not read shame, not feel shame sometimes looking at this verse? I mean, after all, you look at this and you're like, well, I, if the person who has the kids is free of shame, well, I guess if I don't have kids, not, I do have shame. Does that make me weak? And maybe even the bigger question is, does that make me not blessed by God? Because that's what it says in verse 5. Sons are an inheritance. An inheritance. So this passage, I think, absolutely says that children are a good gift from God. But I don't think it can only mean that. Because otherwise, what, what do we do with Jesus? I mean, he was blessed. He was the anointed one. He's received an inheritance, but he didn't have any biological children. Jesus is the most mighty warrior of all. Jesus was not put to shame by his enemies, but put shame to death by defeating his enemies. Similar things could be said about Paul and other great missionaries of the faith like Amy Carmichael or David Bernard who didn't have biological children. So, so what, do we, what do we do with this? I think we have to understand that this ultimately applies to the concept of spiritual children. And I think to understand that, we have to go back and think through the Old Testament and the covenants. And I think a couple truths come through as you look back at the covenants. First of all, children is how God intended to fill the earth with his people who bless his name. Therefore, children were always a blessing to be a blessing. And this happened in a couple of ways. Now, first of all, like we see the promises to Abraham. It was Abraham's seed that would make a great nation. Like in, and then it was this nation that was to bless the name of God. It was to bless the nations. The other way we see is that in, from the promises of, to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 is that there was a promised Messiah that would come from a biological lineage. 
So then this Messiah comes. Jesus is born. We get his lineage from his father and his mother's side. They show that he's from the line of Adam and David. He was the promised child of blessing who would bless the earth. You know, and maybe we were wondering when Jesus comes, is he going to continue the line? Is he going to make Israel great again? But then he starts to speak a family different and kind of messes with stuff. He, in John chapter 3, he talks about being born again by the Spirit, giving us the idea of spiritual new life. And when his biological family wants to see him in Luke chapter 8, he says, they're, they're not my mother, my brothers, or my sisters. Those who do the will of the Father are. And as we know, Jesus died and was resurrected to new life, and believers in the Messiah share in that spiritual resurrection, particularly when they are spiritually born again and join a new spiritual family. So after Jesus, spiritual birth and growth and family become the primary focus. Everything changed when he came. Before God's blessing came through the biological family of Abraham, now God's blessing would come through the world, through the church, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, a people who have been spiritually born again, and everyone born again receives the blessing of God to be a blessing to the world. Think about it. Do we see any more genealogies after Jesus? We see churches being planted. That's the heritage. Paul speaks Timothy like he's as a son in 1 Timothy 1. And he does the same with Onesimus and Philemon. John refers to members of his church he was overseeing as children in 1 John. Peter called Mark his son in 1 Peter 5. And the Bible tells us that Peter was married, but not if he has biological children. We know that Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos under their wing, but not if they have children. We don't know if they did or didn't have children. That's not my point. They probably did. The point is the emphasis starts to fall on spiritual new life, on spiritual children. And just if you're worried I'm taking this too far, I want to answer the question, does this replace or negate having biological or adopted children? (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. The best way to raise spiritual children is to have biological children. That's the best way to disciple someone into new spiritual life. The epistles continue to assume that families have children and biological children remain a good gift from God and the norm for marriage. So, so back to our text. If you haven't heard this already, I want to be clear that like Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He's received an inheritance. He is the strong warrior. And on that final day when when all of the enemies of the world come against Jesus, there he'll be with a church full of spiritual children behind him. Rest will be there and toil will be no longer. And so how do we participate in this work of, of making new spiritual children? The quick answer is discipleship. That's what we hear in the Great Commission, that we make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. And that's the work that we have. So just like we saw in verses 1 and 2, God ultimately does the work. We can't regenerate the heart like this, but the Spirit does. And so therefore, because we are beloved, we spend ourselves for the gospel and for spiritual children. Whether that be in our homes, raising biological or adopted children, in our vocational jobs, or serving through children's ministry downstairs, or small groups here, or as deacons, as elders, or maybe being sent to a people group who have never heard the name of Jesus, this 
is how we spend our lives. And this labor is not in vain. So everyone here, every member of this church, this is all our work, is to raise spiritual children. So I want you to ask the question right now, just thinking to yourself, what spiritual children are you investing in? Just pause and think about that. And in Henson Baptist Church, what spiritual children are you investing in? And the answer to this, honestly, is going to look very different for different stages of life. So I want to take a moment and just speak to a few different groups inside the church. First of all, high schoolers, college students, and young adults, you have something that I don't have as much of anymore, and that's energy and a whole lot of life in front of you. You can do anything you want. So let me encourage you this. Don't waste time. Put your hand to this work right now of discipling. You don't have to have your career worked out. You don't have to have a a spouse in mind. This is the work that you begin now. And there's nothing more encouraging than watching young adults take ownership and responsibility for the life of the church. And when it comes time to pursue a career, pursue something you like. Pursue something you enjoy, but don't build your life around it. Build your life around the church and start that now. Some of you might be called to ministry vocationally. Some of you might be called to take the gospel where it isn't. Whatever your calling is, your call is to disciple, creating spiritual children. Some of you might be single your whole life. Some of you might get married and have kids. And when I tell when you get married and have kids, go for it. Don't wait. Go, go and do that good work. But whether you are single or married, give yourself wholeheartedly to the work of this in the church. To our parents of children in our church, especially the tired ones, I just want to remind you that this is such a good work, that your work is not in vain. Keep it up and labor in faith. Like, I don't have children myself, but I get it. How could you not want to be controlling when you love this little being so much? Trust the care of your little being, ultimately, to the Lord. It's hard not to be devastated when our children don't believe in the gospel. Trust them to the Lord, for his work can open up their hearts. It can be hard not to parent in fear all the time. Trust that the Lord is protecting your children. And finally, I just want to say, don't parent only your biological children. Now I get it, especially when they're really young. You don't have much sleep. You don't have much time. I know. But just find a goal to, to bring one person in, into the process with you. I'm not asking you to parent the whole church. Just find someone else. Bring them in along with you. Build this in from the start. And to those in our children who do, uh, those in our church who do not have any children, whether you are single or married, I just want to slow down for a minute and talk to you. Talk to us. Because of the New Testament picture of spiritual children that we have in spiritual family, you have a place of worth and value and purpose in the kingdom of God and in this church. If you don't have children, you're in good company. Jesus and Paul 
and many others. Are they any, was, were, were they any less human? No. Actually, Jesus was the perfect human. And when the enemy starts throwing the darts of accusation, of shame, of embarrassment, of not being good enough, know that you've got a church full of arrows pointed right at those lies. That you do not have to live and walk with shame, but with freedom, because you are part of this spiritual family. Because you don't have kids, you have a unique bandwidth to give yourself to this work of raising spiritual children in the church. So I just want to encourage you to give yourself wholly to this work. Make this the centerpiece of your life. Even when it's hard, it's not in vain. It's a blessed labor. You know, it's it's not lost on me that I'm the one preaching Psalm 127 and that I don't have children. This, This wasn't on purpose. This was sort of just how the dates fell. I knew the date before I knew the text. And I couldn't have been more thankful to see that this was my text uh, coming to this. The reality is I, I'm 40. I'm not Abraham old yet, but I, I'm not young. I'm not the young man that's talking about right here anymore. And we've been married almost 14 years. No kids. We chose in our first five years of marriage to invest deeply into spiritual children and to discipling. And that's what actually attracted me to Whitney so much to start with, as I watched her love and disciple this group of girls, kind of like a, a mother hen. I'd watch her go pick them up from school, do Bible studies with them, uh, do things like girly things, like hair, or, I don't know, girl things, you know. Um, I wa- she would go and pick up uh, them from parties when they made a decision they wished they wouldn't have. And I watched her be a spiritual mom to a lot of these women. And then we moved here to Portland so she could go to seminary. And once she finished, we, um, we started the conversation about having kids. It seemed like the right time. We actually bought the Honda Pilot that we drive now to help carry kids around. We, we were making the steps towards that. And then we got, we got sick. And frankly, we've been so sick, there are just seasons where we're struggling to take care of ourselves and can't imagine throwing a kid in there. And because of the particular things you struggle with, I'm not even sure kids are on, on the table. So we don't know. We don't know if we will have biological or adopted kids in the future. Something we're we're talking through more. Are we discouraged? Are we filled with shame? Actually, we're not. There are moments where it's hard for us to ever think that the, the option, we don't even have the option, that maybe that's been taken from us. And we don't experience a lack of shame, not because we're super Christians, but because, first of all, we just we remember we're beloved. One of the things that illness has taught us as it's stripped away so many other things in life is we just continue to be shocked that Jesus saved us from our sin. Me from my hypocritical, rule-keeping, pharisaical side and her just straight from the world. God has saved us. And so if we live a life that's not as typical, so be it. We're going to spend the energy we have for the kingdom. But it's also okay because ultimately, no, we, we have a bunch of spiritual kiddos, you know, running around. Even thinking about that group that I was talking about before, you know, there's, uh, they have families. Uh, one of the girls is still single but started up a Christian counseling clinic in Chicago. Um, one works on staff at a church. We're watching them be fruitful, launch their wings, so to speak, as spiritual children and do great things in this world. 
That is where our energy will continue to go, whether biological kids ever come or not, is into spiritual children. And that will last. That will last. That's our story. Your story might be a little bit different, but to those who don't have children, I just want you to know there is no shame. You have every blessing in Christ. And now give yourself with this extra bandwidth you have to raising spiritual children. Finally, I want to talk to those in our church who are working non-ministry vocations, and especially those of you who have been around for a while and will be around for a while. I want to be clear that not every person is called to be an elder, but every person is called to raising spiritual children. So that's all of us. We need a church full of members raising spiritual children who are working other jobs. As I said earlier, we need doctors. We need all kinds of vocations represented in our church, but who ultimately give all of the energy of their life to the church. So I see this in a lot of our small group leaders. Uh, They work long jobs. They raise young kids. And then they do the work of leading a small group, of discipling, of pouring themselves into others. So if you're in a small group, give them some love. Tell them you said thanks. And maybe the biggest way you can tell them thanks is to do the thing they're doing. Take responsibility in that group. Lead in conversation. Pursue people outside that conversation. But there are a lot of other less public ways I see this happening, whether it's giving rides to people or visiting shut-ins or people who serve in children's ministry, just ways that are less visible that we, I, we need a church that's just here for the long haul doing the work of raising spiritual children. It's hard work. It's normal work. And where this gets joyful and hard is when our kids leave the home. This is a normal part of parenting, right? Is, and, and, grow, and kids growing in maturity and responsibilities, they move out of the house. They go and start families. They go and they uh, get work and they start taking the responsibility on themselves. That's what we do when we send out workers. We are spiritually parenting people that we send out to spread their wings and leave the house. And that's a good thing. And this Sunday is just a really great example. As you heard earlier, this is the, the short last Sunday with us. Uh, Chris has, has accepted a call to serve as an associate pastor up in Washington at Edgewood Bible Church. And for the last six years, you've poured your life into us, and we've poured your, our lives into you through the highs and through the lows. And now, now it's time. It's time to launch. And while this is hard and we'll miss you, oh, we're so proud of you. We're so proud of who you are and proud of the work you'll be doing. Hopefully this fall, we're going to do the same thing with the Sylvesters as we send them to an unreached people group. For those of us who stay here, who may never become an elder, who, who may never be sent out, this is the work. This is the normal Christian work he is calling us to, raising and sending out spiritual children for the sake of of the kingdom. So I want to encourage us, keep at it. Let's keep our hands to it. Well, as we've read today, Psalm 127, the question was put forward, what gives us rest, not stress in our labors? Solomon knows better than anyone that our desk were not meant to be altars, and they buckle under the weight. So the answer isn't one of more vain work, 
apart from God? The answer is that we restfully work and sleep because we're beloved by God. So let's labor with all of our strength, with all of our faith, to to do the work that God has given us and shared with us. And let's raise spiritual children here. Let's be done with lesser things and do this work. Let's take a moment right now and just pray silently in your heart and just pray, asking this question, how can I take more spiritual responsibility in this church? Father, we rejoice in the, in the new life you have given us in Jesus Christ. We rejoice that, that you have given us security and that this is ultimately your work. And we rejoice that we are able to share in your work. So Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us in faith, that you would give us perseverance, and that we would work with all of our faith according to your will, to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.